Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place, so make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone, I'm super happy to be here. Welcome to Let's Talk AI, my name is Thomas, I'm the host. And today I have the pleasure to be with Lucia Troches Ardila. Um, so Lucia, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the invitation to this podcast. I'm excited about it. Uh, and so, so am I. I'm so happy um, to have you on the podcast today. I have so many questions to ask. Um, I always like to ask at first, um, Can you describe yourself in a few words, in a few sentences for the audience? It can be a personal and professional introduction. Okay. Um, so I would describe myself as a Colombian empowered woman <laughs> living in Mexico and working in the national and international tech world. Um, I would also describe myself as a leader that trusts her team and wants the best for them. Um, and in the personal life, I think a good friend, uh, a wife, and a soon-to-be mom. Wow, congratulations on that. I'm super happy. <laughs> uh, this is a, a very impressive um, description. Um, my second question generally is, um, what are you trying to achieve? Uh, And I feel like you might have a few words to say about that, but Lucia, what are you trying to achieve today? Today? Or <laughs> like in general? <laughs> like in general, but okay. uh, today, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, think, um, I think one of the objectives in my life has yeah. been to, um, to strive to have an impact. And mm -hmm. I think right now I am striving to design and deploy projects and programs that have a social impact through public policy. Um, and I also want more individuals to care about great causes and do something about it, not just care about them and say like, oh, yeah, I care about the environment. Oh, yeah, I yeah. care about, um, you know, like there is no more corruption. But what are you doing about it in your day to day? Yeah, exactly. And this is, so you mentioned uh, public policy, right? Um, yeah. And maybe for the listeners, because uh, when I first met Christina uh, through the episode, I learned a lot of new uh, new terms and like I learned a lot about regulations and um, what you are trying to do at um, PIT Policy Lab. Uh, so can you maybe uh, shortly introduce people to uh, public policy? Yeah. I mean, um, what we do at the Pit Policy Lab is we try to generate, we try and succeed <laughs> on generating uh, projects that are multi-sector. Um, mm -hmm. And what we want to do is make sure that governments have a more effective way of making policy, right? So okay. public policy in general uh, refers to the 
act on the fact that governments um, create programs uh, towards social impact so that people that live in different countries, localities, municipalities, etc., have a better life. And what we want to do is do that through technology and making sure that there is a collaboration between different sectors. So not only um, working with the government, but working with different companies, different academia institutions, and different um, social um, social uh, yeah impact organizations mm. as well. I see. Well, thanks. Thanks for this uh, introduction. And so you mentioned uh, PID Policy Lab, so I will uh, ask you again, but um, can you take us uh, briefly through uh, your career and your journey, just so that we get um, a, a glimpse of um, what is your background and how did you evolve through your career? Yeah. Um, well, let's start with the fact that, again, I'm Colombian, so I studied in Bogota. Okay. I studied multimedia engineering uh, mm -hmm. at the Military University of Colombia and then used that to expand my view of what was possible looking beyond programming and video games, which was a lot of the career focus. Yeah. Um, so I was I became the national manager of uh, communications for ISEC in Mexico and then ISEC in the United States the year after that. And what I did, well, basically, ISEC is a nonprofit organization that focuses on development, youth development, and international exchange. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot uh, about the challenges of working in a different country that wasn't mine, uh, a lot of cultural exchange as well. And um, I just became in love with um, traveling and making sure that I knew different perspectives on different people. Um, then after after that, I became the international marketing manager for Texters, which is a company that focuses on acceleration for startups. And I was working at that time with over a hundred countries, uh, managing the brands for the early stages programs, which are called Startup Weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, After that, I think that I jumped into a little bit more of that impact, of that public impact that I was mm -hmm. talking about. I worked at an action tank called C-Minds as director of programs, and I could really start then designing and implementing impact projects um, that were multi-sectorial, that were multi-actor, and that were very complex. Um, so I think that's where my career really stepped up. I was part of the leadership team there, and I got to have a say on a strategic decisions, um, where I also learned how to navigate gracefully <laughs> the management of projects um, as a young but experienced already woman in a very men-tilted industry, uh, which is the tech world. And now as part of the PIT Policy Lab, I'm the general manager here and I am strengthening all the skills that I have learned throughout my career and still looking forward to continue that deep impact on society and my team through the work that we do. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you for this uh, amazing retrospective of um, what you've been doing um, professionally. So uh, speaking about PID Policy Lab, um, 
uh, I would like to ask you about how the organization is working to build collaborative projects uh, across, uh, you mentioned multiple sectors. So could you share uh, maybe some insights about um, how do you approach uh, this kind of project? Yeah. So again, as I, as I mentioned, I'm the general manager there. So I oversee the day-to-day -day operations and the team. Um, I think our ultimate goal is to ensure that the team members are happy, first of all, and that we're exceeding our clients' expectations. And what I mean by that is that we always try to go above and beyond what the project really is about um, to ensure that we have different perspectives again. So in terms of the multi-sector collaborations, we usually have a main partner that we collaborate with. So this may be, okay. again, government or academia or uh, another social organization. Yes. And what we can, what, or, or being part of a consortium of different, different parts, the technical and the social aspect. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is that we have done several projects now where we have realized that working in this kind of multi-sectorial collaboration is hard. It's very hard because you need to coordinate with different types of, of people, different types of stakeholders, but it's the best way to achieve impact. Um, and especially in the public sector where if you don't have the information about, for example, like a problem you're trying to solve and you don't have a technical team for it and you don't have the right uh, knowledge for it, then it, the problem might, might be solved on the surface, but not mm -hmm. on the deeper end. Mm -hmm. So that I think that's how we're building to collaborate mm. projects. That's super interesting. Um, and for the people who are listening right now, no worries. We're we're going to get into like specific examples of um, of a, a project, multi sector project, like uh, uh, like you mentioned me some some crazy examples, and so we'll uh, be able to understand it further. Um, So before before getting into some examples, um, uh, this is funny how you have an experience where you, you've done project both regionally and globally. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, what role do you believe AI can play uh, in solving some of the biggest social problems we face today? Uh, and how can we ensure that it is used responsibly? Um, so I believe that the use of AI systems is a tool to help us solve some of those biggest social problems, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so for example, in the education sector, if we're talking about the abandonment of school, especially in, in countries that have low income, mm -hmm. um, Latin America the, the, as a region must have some of the worst permanence rates of um in rural schools, for example. Mm -hmm. So using the system, the AI system, to identify what the plausible causes are or what the problems are for those students to remain at the school are, um, and then prevent that from happening through different strategies, not necessarily yeah. through AI, but AI helps us identify that, is a great way of using the technology. And... Of course, as, as you mentioned, it is important that we understand how to use it responsibly. But 
I think that right now there are several frameworks at the international and national and regional level that can be adapted to any project. So Mm. there shouldn't be a question of how to, but rather if we are implementing them or not. So I believe there is no excuse to say we're not using AI responsibly. I think that we should just do the work and, and implement those frameworks already existing or create new ones if if you have the time and the team to do it, um, but making sure that you are uh, considering privacy, security, and transparency, any other aspect from the technology that might be a risk towards that population or towards the government institution or towards uh, the academic institution. Like it, it depends on, on the type of project, but I think that it's, it's very possible and very doable right now. Hmm. Well, thanks. That gives some some insights, and you mentioned a lot of industries, um, and so uh, this is a, this might be also an interesting part in uh, working uh, uh, in working in um, uh, in this kind of projects. In um, working at Bid Policy Lab, you might uh, be working with governments and, and working. You mentioned education. Uh, in offers call, you mentioned working uh, uh, on the health or environment sustainability uh, projects. Um, regarding those two, um, those two fields, health and environment, um, you've mentioned, you've told me before, before we, we shared, uh, today on this podcast, you've shared with me some experiences and I would like to, uh, get back on them. But first of all, uh, speaking of health and environmental, uh, sustainability, we could include education, um, uh, to make it more interesting, but what do you, how do you see, um, what do you see as the most exciting opportunities uh, for AI in those areas? Um, yeah, that would be my question. Um, I think there are so many, um, and especially, uh, I, I'm sure you've Very heard. wide question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very wide, and I think there are so many. Um, for example, in, in environmental, specifically from designing more efficient energy buildings, right? And that could be one. Um, monitoring deforestation or monitoring species specifically to track um, the health of an ecosystem, Um, optimizing renewable energy deployments, Um, making sure, for example, in health, right? Um, There is um, like how hospitals are working right now in making sure that patients' information is getting gathered. So, Previously, you would have to do this manually all the time, and now you have more statistics and more data that is being gathered so that you can make better decisions or support decisions as uh, for a doctor, for a nurse, for uh, a person that works in a hospital. Um, And I think in education, again, um, many, many opportunities as well. Um, But yeah, some of them are uh, like understanding causes of school abandonment, understanding, for example, like what kind of topics are more interesting to students and how you can change curriculums based on that and making sure that you are actually educating for the future and not because something was part of a framework before that worked 50 years ago or 100 years ago, right? Education has changed so much in the past years, especially since the pandemic as well, like hybrid education and making sure that we're understanding what are the topics of the future and what skills young people need to learn to be able to thrive in their life. 
Um, so I think those might be some of the ones that I'm excited about. Well, that's fascinating. Um, I want to ask you about healthcare, but first of all, I would like to to know about uh, if you have more insights, for example, on the on the education field. Like you mentioned, uh, the future, um, the future, um, like courses that we will teach that will be fundamental for the education of a, of a child. Uh, can you share more about these? Like how how Like, first of all, do you work with any project related uh, with education right now? Yeah. So we're actually doing a project that's called Equitable AI. Well, that was uh -huh. part of a call called Equitable AI. We're part of a consortium. And in this project, what we're doing is actually implementing an AI system in Guanajuato, Mexico, so that we can understand the causes of school abandonment. And understanding those causes will make sure to inform the professors and the directors of schools of what could be the strategies so that these kids remain. So the objective is not school abandonment. The objective is permanence, right? Mm. Um, but through the analysis of the causes of school abandonment. And mm. it's, it's a very wide topic as well, because it might be that Um, there is different notes of information that come from different settings, socially, economically, technically, yeah. et cetera. But um, I think that's one of the projects that we're more, most excited about. We're going to be releasing a report, uh, a recommendations report on specifically that, that um, a, a guide, an ethical um, AI checklist so that more schools around the country could Um, implement and around the world could implement um, that system and ensuring that they know the actual causes of school abandonment to create those strategies for permanence. Mm. Wow, that's super interesting. Uh, that's very interesting. And and I remember in your first call, you mentioned a project about healthcare. And uh, just before in the episode, you mentioned, um, like, how do you use uh those projects to measure things to take action uh, and because a lot of the time we talk about the analysis part and like building the report and then but then what happens when we have all the study like how do we act right and so yeah. can you introduce us uh, uh, to, to the listeners about the healthcare project that you mentioned and how you went from the research, like building models and understanding to like the action and like, how do you measure the action, which is a very interesting part, I feel. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that exactly that's, that's, that's it. Right. So there are different stages of how to implement an AI project to successfully. And I think that this health, her, this healthcare project um, was done under um, the FER initiative from the, IADB, which is the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, it was done in conjunction with um, the Tech de Monterrey, which is a university here in Mexico, the government of Jalisco, and C-Mines, which is where I used to work before. And it was to solve the, well, not solve the problem, but understanding the causes of um, a chronic and progressive disease and condition that is called um, uh, diabetic retinopathy. This disease is, um, well, is caused by diabetes and diabetes is one of the most chronic 
normal diseases around the world. But in Mexico specifically, um, the the disease of retinopathy of diabetic retinopathy has um, is one of the leading causes of um, blindness and mm. loss of sight. So what we wanted to do was create a DR screen screen program um, at the first level of health. So when you first go to the doctor to, if you know you have diabetes, um, the patients would be able to undergo a visual review, basically, and a computer system would transfer the iPhones, which is the exam that is done in that specifically, the photographs of that to the diabetic retinopathy graduation department. So that way, um, the AI system would assist the doctors in determining what were the possibilities of this person having that disease and what stage the disease was in, in order to transfer those cases to a specific um, hospital or to a specific treatment. Um, So... There's a lot of challenges that we identified through the actual implementation of this project. Uh, I think that, um, of course, you need to consider resources, human resources, technical resources, the fact that people understand that an, an AI system is being used to treat them. Um, but we had really good results from the first pilot. Over a thousand patients in the state of Jalisco were treated in five health centers. And um, this also resulted in a policy report and in a governance framework um, because there's a lot of like legal stuff that pertains to health data of people um, that is still uh, to be public. Um, This project ends on July this year. So this will be published um, in July. And I think that um, the most interesting part about this project is that the multi-sector collaboration really helped in understanding what the different pieces were needed to um, to make it successful, right? Mm. So the next step would be for this pol- policy to be implemented by the government and then for more people to be part of the data sets that are training the algorithm, et cetera, um, so that we could have like a, a full rollout of the program. Hmm. Oh, that's super interesting. And w- when you say, for example, all right, let's say like the regulation uh, pass and yes. now you can deploy and have more data to choose a model. What about the the work like the workforce like the people who are uh treating the patient and like how do you scale both well my i want to make an hybrid question here so you mentioned like the the, the cross um the, the the cross uh um the multiple sectors and, and like how you bring everything t- together so i would like to to hear more about that but most of all how do you scale like from a, a project like that once you have the study, you have the numbers, you've done everything, and the governments approve it. How yep. do you scale it take like technically? I mean, technically, yep. I would assume like you just have more data and you make data scientists works, but most of all, how do you implement increase the workforce? Yeah, I think that that's that's a that's such a good question because um there cannot be one without the other. 
So you cannot implement an AI system without actually building the capacity for the government officials that are running the program, the doctors that are implementing the exam, and the people that are getting a support, so the same doctors that are getting the support from the system or the information from the system. There is always a confirmation from a, do- a human person, from a doctor, right? So it's not like if you go to that exam, the system will tell you, oh, yeah, you have uh, diabetic retinopathy stage two, right? And you're going to believe that system? No. The system always turns the information towards the doctor. The doctor makes a confirmation and the doctor is the one that talks to the patient. So I think that it's very important for us to build out those capacity and those skills within the sector itself. So if we're talking about health, specifically in this project, or we're talking about education with the directors of the schools or the teachers, et cetera, um, it, it doesn't um, work on its own as an AI system that is solving the problem. Again, as I mentioned, is a tool to help aid in the efficiency of the problem solving instead of just being the problem sol- solver. Hmm. Very interesting. And how do you explain people? Uh, because I feel like medical decisions and, and affirmations for someone that is not familiar with AI, when yeah. you tell them, okay, so we have an AI model that detected that you might have a probability of whatever uh, to have um this disease phase two, how do you deal with making clear that people like those are mod- recommended model, but you have also doctors that are behind. So how yeah. do you explain it to people? So uh, what we did for this pilot specifically was that people were given um, a manual uh, of what was going to happen. If they wanted, if they had diabetes, they could do the exam for free and they would receive this information about how the AI system worked, what the AI system's recommendation would probably be. So you have um, 0% chance to 100% chance or whatever in these types of levels, but a doctor is gonna be uh, receiving that information and confirming that information from the exam. Um, so the people understood and knew that information previous to the performance of the exam. So it was never done without their consent. Um, they always consented to, yes, take the photograph of my of my eye. Um, yes, I'm agreeing that I understand that this is being run through a system. This data is going to be collected for this amount of time. And I'm giving the consent of that, right? So I think that making sure that the people are informed and that they understand, again, is this this in the public um, sector is the same as in the entertainment sector, right? You mm-hmm. need to understand that Netflix gives you um, some options if you saw an action movie and Netflix is giving you action movies to see because that's what you like. You probably understand that that's what's happening, right? And they tell you in the terms and conditions that that's happening. Or if you're using Facebook, the ads that are relevant to you are being done by an AI system, right? So you you get those notifications from Facebook now that you are getting those ads because you liked whatever other ad. Um, so I think that's that's one of the most important parts as well, as you mentioned, that people understand. And yes, it's a challenge because 
most people are not tech savvy. Um, most people don't know what the consequences or what the risks of the AI systems are. So that's why we try to do it very responsibly, understanding what non-disclosure agreements we need to do and sign, what kind of data we're collecting, how long we're collecting it for, what kind of privacy frameworks we're using, um, how transparent we are with the information we're, uh, we're generating with the algorithm, et cetera. Wow, that's fascinating. And regarding uh, retaining data of people, uh, I was thinking before you mentioned, all right, next step, um, regulation moves on. And then you can grow the model, grow the grow the grow the project. Uh, but you mentioned this retaining the data, and so yeah. how do you grow a model when some data is going to be um, like you're going to delete some data, or do you like when do you like sanitize the data and then you don't know it's from that person, but you keep using it in the model, or yeah. what is uh, data is always anonymized like that's the that's the correct way of labeling data it's always anonymous and you don't know which patient that photograph is from um what you do know is when you're running when you, when you're running that program you do know that that photograph specifically is with that person but when you're training the algorithm the algorithm does not know or does not identify as it doesn't connect a person to a specific of course photograph, yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. so it depends on the data sets and how you're doing it but um i think it's very important right to understand how long we're keeping the data for if we're only keeping the data to train the system but we're anonymizing it and making sure that the data is clean we're making sure that the data is safe and secure um then shouldn't it shouldn't be a problem and people can always say like you know what i don't want you to use my picture anymore so we will we would remove that picture from the data set hmm. all right well thank you thank you for sharing all these uh, details it is very interesting um you have an you, you have an extensive experience leading both regional and global programs uh, i wanted to ask you what is the difference between uh, these two types of programs uh <laughs> this is also <laughs> such a good question. I think that um, one key aspect or something that plays like a very important role is cultural aspects okay. and local context, okay. right? So it depends on what whether you're running, again, a regional or, or a global pro program, you need to understand the differences culturally between a region, which might mm -hmm. have up to... 20, 25 countries and global, which is like the whole, the whole, the whole part of the regions and all of those nuances that come with that. Um, so for example, uh, when I used to run global projects and global programs, always ensuring the participation of at least one to two people of each region in the weekly meetings or in the follow-up meetings from, for a project that would help um, so that the representation was there of understanding what they needed, how they needed it, and how it would be implemented for that region specifically. And just making sure that your program has uh, those levels of implementation, right? 
And again, for the regional part, if in a regional program you have countries that are more advanced in a topic and others that are less advanced in a topic, you need to create two different sets of information for mm. those two different um, types of audiences. Mm. Um, so I think that those are the biggest differences between global and regional. Um, and I think that um, one of the best ways of ensuring that you're being successful is just talking to people, right? Uh, becoming more human, getting feedback from them. Hey, what could have we done better in the last iteration of this program? And what do you think we need to implement? Um, also, in terms of global, one of the challenges, main challenges that I ran into was translation of resources. There's a lot of resources in English and there is a lot of resources in um, that that are probably not for everyone because not everyone speaks that language. So making sure that you are representing as well that region, that regional uh, perspective through language translation is important. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for uh, uh, enlightening um, those uh, two differences. So you mentioned these uh, two differences between regional and uh, and, and global projects. Um, and one thing that you mentioned uh, through stating the differences is uh, getting feedback. Yep. And I feel like this is such an important thing. Uh, like you mentioned before in the first project, um, uh, like in the healthcare project, like how do you measure your actions and how do you measure like how the AI model is performing and how do you define these KPIs and all that. And I feel like when, when we try to add value, we need to understand how we're going to measure the value that we, that we are going to analyze. And like, like how, do you, how do you measure that? And so I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned also that it was a challenge to get feedbacks. And, and I feel like, for example, if I develop an application tomorrow, um, that does a specific thing. It is a tricky way. Uh, it is hard to get feedback because the users will never say, or like or patient or, or a group of people will never say what they need because they might not know it. So yeah. how do you approach a group of people to get great feedback? Like what do you have frameworks or do you have some vision to share regarding that? Yeah, so I think that there are a lot of techniques to get feedback, um, starting from the basic one, which is service, right? Like you send out and you approach your customer. Um, that's one. You can also do focus groups where you ask specific questions to that group of people that was served with that product or that service. Um, then you also create um, like a chatbot or a communication channel for that person to give you feedback whenever they want to. Um, but I also think that in terms of feedback, like you need to understand what you're trying to get feedback on, right? If you create a product or a service that is um, regarding a specific thing and you want feedback on A, but people are giving you feedback on C, then it's not what you need to understand. So I think that first of all, understanding what kind of feedback you need for your system to work properly for that person to understand what's happening or for that product to be able to um, be of actual value to that person that is the first step and then 
after that, implementing the strategies and the techniques to gather that feedback hmm. and making sure that you are analyzing that feedback and reiterating on the project. Hmm. Um, so not leaving it there like, oh, they told us that it sucked, right? <laughs> For example. And well, it sucked, but we're still running it as it is. Like, no, it sucked. Why did it? Why? Why was it bad? What do you think could be improved? Um, what would you have liked to seen that you didn't, or whatever questions you you might ask, and then retraining your system or redoing your product or service. Right? Hmm. Do you sometimes find that? Some specific people will give, will give very great feedbacks, and so you will you will focus more on the minority because you know those are quality feedbacks, and it makes sense with your vision, and you can measure then the impact of their feedbacks based on how you're going to evolve. Or do you think that um, regarding feedbacks, we need to keep it very diverse and homogene and mix mixing a lot of uh, a lot of visions and, and a lot of profiles yeah i think that it definitely needs to be very um diverse i think that you have to go the extra step as a project manager or as a project in general to hmm. ensure that you are receiving different kinds of feedback from different kinds of people hmm. so if you're serving people that are um, different races, ethnicities, religions, or whatever your project is about, you need to consider all of them, right? Mm. And especially now with underrepresented groups, you need to consider that to balance your data. Because if you're, as you say, you're always receiving great feedback from, let's say, men, and women are not being considered, then you're going to be creating products that are mostly focused on men. And unless that's your vision, mm. then you should be working like even harder to get that feedback from the other mm. portion of your audience. Hmm. Yeah, and I feel like this is so important because uh, diversity and um, being inclusive uh, might be challenging sometimes because of like cultural differences, but in the midterm, long-term, it becomes very enlightening on all right we struggled a bit because we have cultural differences and so we needed to give it more time to being a, be aligned on some thoughts or visions but in the long term what you're building is global and it works for more people and yeah. so this is something i've i've learned through like previous podcast with uh, some people um, what are your thoughts on uh, on this yeah i think definitely the the globalization and right now like any product or service can be global right yeah um so i think that if you decided that that's going to be the case you need to understand how to incorporate a diverse set of information a diverse set of feedback a diverse set of um of yeah, of like users and user experience to to make sure that you are serving all of your audience. Otherwise, you're just again you're just serving them like a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Um, in our first call, you mentioned uh, a very very interesting project project that I, that I love to hear, and also I love to uh, to understood like how can this data 
enable and enhance uh, so many other uh, um, KPIs that we were we could not think at first. I'm talking about the Jaguars uh, case that you have been working on. Can you explain to the audience, to the people who are listening, about what you've done, and then what are the implementations of those information um, further on? Yeah, of course. So this project you're talking about is called Tech for Nature Mexico. Uh, I'm sorry, (laughs) I call it the Jaguar project. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and this is for um, AI for Climate's first uh, living lab. Uh, What we did was that we we designed a project for mangrove and jaguar conservation in the state of Yucatan, Mexico. And this was harnessing community-based approaches and intersector collaborations and AI systems to analyze and monitor both ecosystems health and um, the jaguar monitoring for its conservation. So this was done through the deployment of camera traps and where where thousands of pictures were were taken through these camera traps um, to make the, the data sets. And then the creation of an algorithm, of a pattern recognition algorithm to understand how many jaggers were moving from that corridor. Um, and then we also implemented sound monitoring devices to understand the system, the, eco, the ecosystem's health um, through sound. So I think that this project, um, this, still, this project's still going on. It's not, it's not finished yet. Um, I still, it has still until um, December this year, if I'm not mistaken. And this project specifically, what wants to do is understanding because the jaguar is an umbrella species, which means that if the jaguar is safe or if there is the presence of jaguars, then um, other uh, species and the ecosystem will thrive, right? Um, so this includes uh, a specific kind of pig, which in English, I don't know the name, but in Spanish, yes. Uh, this includes a lot of birds. Uh, in the ecosystem, crocodiles and other other species that are running through that specific corridor is a natural reserve. And what we wanted to understand was how many how many jaguars there were through that pattern recognition system. So imagine the jaguars have in their spots, it's like fingerprints. The each jaguar has a specific set of spots, and not any jaguar is the same as another. So um, at first, I think five jaguars were sighted through the camera traps. And then also understanding, um, like, for example, if people are hunting this species in the area through the sound monitoring, um, how to prevent that, right? So it will help, this project will help the government make better decisions and the park rangers make better decisions and faster decisions, more efficient decisions on how to take care of this species to ensure that the ecosystem continues thriving throughout the years. Wow, this is fascinating. I love how it combines both image, um, images and sounds and how- yeah. and I mean, how it's two different it's... systems. Don't believe that there is, is, is one AI system. No, it's two different AI systems. Of course. But um, what we're doing is that we're collecting the information from the pattern recognition AI system plus adding that to the sound monitoring ecosystem. And then we make decisions based on that, right? 
Yeah, and what I found fascinating is that uh, we often see like a, a deep, learn, deep learning case where, where it's just about video or image and another one that it will just be about sound, but this really combines and it really shows how powerful combined it can be because then you can make correlations between what's going on through yep. the movements of the jaguars and 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 you can also detect like uncommon patterns that you're like yep. why did that happen that doesn't make sense because we didn't see that on this specific model but this happened there so why and and this is fascinating um and do you have kpis like do you have other measures like what kind of impact besides uh, hunting uh, um, and, and taking fast decisions, do you have other KPIs that monitoring those animals and, and the activity of the animal in the region can enhance and add value? Yeah. So again, as I said, it's mangroves and jaguar conservation. Oh. Mangroves are one of the most important parts between the ocean and land. Um, specifically in the coast of Yucatan, mm -hmm. very other many coasts in South America and Europe, etc. Because this ecosystem, what it does is that it oxygenates Earth, first of all. So if there are uh, th if there is a lot of human activity in the mangrove ecosystem, mm -hmm. the ecosystem will start to die, and then that ecosystem provides the mangrove ecosystem provides as well the food and um, food and water resources to the smaller species from this chain that mm. the jaguar feeds from. Mm. So uh, when we're protecting that, when we're understanding how to conserve better those areas and that species specifically, that is the, the umbrella species, we understand how to protect um, the area of the mangrove, which also includes like beach erosion, It includes, um, yeah, just a bunch of other, of other, um, like KPIs that 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 are important for the health of that specific zone, and that can be replicated. I mean, the idea of doing this pilot project was mm -hmm. that we want to replicate a framework that works for not only this mangrove in Yucatan but also other mangroves in Colombia, for example, that has uh, a very deep mangrove ecosystem. Uh, Brazil, that also has one. And then in Europe, there are several countries that have it. So just making sure that we are implementing frameworks that can be escalated and that can be useful for other ecosystems as well to ensure that we're protecting more of that um, and conserving more of that um, nature-based hmm. Yeah, and I love how and I love how monitoring those two species plus the sounds, it really allows to control the entire ecosystem yeah. of the zone. This is very impressive because just It's... when hearing the project, you're just like, oh, but what about the other animals? Or okay, yeah. but this is cool, <laughs> but but like why? But when you understand it in um in a better way, you understand that doing these specific actions and mo using audio and uh, photos, videos, um, I'm not sure what it is, but... Um, it's both, it's both. both. But it, wow. yes, it trickles down. It trickles down into like a, a lot of other actions that can be taken towards that conservation. And I don't know if you've seen a couple of years ago or maybe like 
four or five years ago, there was a video that was presented by Yellowstone, the park, on how they reintroduced foxes mm-hmm. or wolves into an environment of the park. And that made that made the ecosystem like be reborn. The ecosystem was bo- was was dead. And then when they reintroduced these animals, like the specific species, the ecosystem was just like completely changed because wow. of how that species moves the ecosystem, right? Because you're running from wolves, but you have to like move, for example, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to make make it up. You can look the video up. Um, but it was just like, yeah, if the wolves are hunting rabbits, for example, or another species, the rabbits have to move. So they move not only food, but they move like other things and so on yeah. and so forth. So I think that that's the important um, wow. part of understanding. And again, I'm not a I'm not a biologist. I'm one of the person of the people in my team. Yeah. Great, she's a great great biologist. So she understood all of this, and she was the one that made us craft the mm. technological and social aspect of it. And mm. we also worked, as I said, mo- a very important part of this is that we also worked with the community. So the community that lives there, that is seeing the jaguars live, right? We're putting camera traps, but they're seeing the jaguars passing through their um, their state farms or whatever. So um, just making sure that they are in into the project as well and they have the buy-in to understand why we're doing this was important for us. Wow. And this is, sorry, this is very like the the... This enhances so much the multi multi sector that you mentioned earlier because we can see that this is not just AI and some kind of uh, mystic technological thing that is happening here. This is like really humans that are gathering information and enhancing technology to achieve better, faster, and um, and this is so fascinating and and the outcomes of those of this work and of all those people working together uh, have such a great value for the world and for the local people. And uh, I feel like this is uh, some, those are examples of use cases that are very, um, very important to, to remind because we talk a lot about AI when we talk about like algorithms, recommend, recommendation algorithms, or like we know how the algorithm, you mentioned algorithms of Netflix before. This is a, an example of AI, of course, but there are many others sectors where we can uh, apply those. So thanks a lot for sharing these. Um, I would like to ask you before asking you my, my three and uh, end of the episode sections, I would like to ask you, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing the technology industry uh, today and tomorrow in the future? Uh, and how can we address uh, those challenges? Uh, the biggest challenges. I think <laughs> that there is a... There is a a specific set of challenges that regard to the technology use, right? Um, so understanding how, again, going back to the ethical and responsible use of technology, how we're collecting data, how we're use, utilizing that data, how we're ensuring that users understand how we're using their data or how how that data is being implemented into systems. Um, I think right now there is a lot of vulnerabilities in terms of cybersecurity and um, regulations as well. Um, I, I was seeing the 
interrogation from the U.S. government towards the CEO of TikTok yesterday. And it's very important that we are actually making sure that our that the people that are representing us in government understand how technology works, right? There were some questions that I was like, I cannot believe this person is asking the, the CEO of TikTok if TikTok is connecting to the Wi-Fi. Like, they don't know how Wi-Fi works, right? Um, so I think that there is a lot of challenges to be approached, but I also think that there is a lot of possibilities of using technology. And I do believe that there we're going on a fast-paced environment um, for we, we've been going on a fast-paced uh, path in the last 20 to 30 years since the internet was launched. But I think that now we need to actually sit down and consider again, as I said, and making sure that we are um, understanding how we are playing a role, each of us, even though we are not engineers or technical people we do have a role in how we're using the systems, what kind of feedback we're giving to those systems. And I think that one of the main challenges is that we continue to saying that it's going to be only like information or data or whatever technical, technical stuff, but it also pertains to the social part of it, right? How are we getting more divided as a society in terms of politics? How are we getting more divided and, and the economic breach is getting wider? Um, so I think there, there's a lot of considerations to be taken into, into account, but um, I, I believe in the power of, of good technology and technology for impact. That's awesome. That's awesome. That made me think also of, uh, yeah, it's going so fast that it is impossible to have like great studies that showcase the harm of new technology. And like, for example, like the harm of like spending more than four hours on TikTok a day. It is very hard to measure it today, but maybe it is something very important. And, uh, and in the upcoming years, we'll see more studies and understand better. And maybe we'll need to add a disclaimer why before using this application, or maybe you'll be you'll need to be under over I don't know whatever age. So, but yeah, thank you so much for your vision and for and for all those uh, recommendations. Uh, uh, if right now there's someone that is listening to you and is very inspired, uh, uh, I am personally very inspired by your career and, and what you are achieving on a daily basis. You have a website. Uh, if I'm correct, you. where you showcase all your uh, your um, amazing projects. Um, what tips, uh, career-wise, uh, would you give to someone that is inspired by what you're doing and what you're doing in technology, working in those projects? Like, do you have some tips about like learning, getting information, and growing? Yeah. So I think that. Um... It's a it's a double-sided sword, uh, this kind of question, because I feel like there's a lot of information out there and we have to be very critical about where we're getting our information from, what kind of sources we're actually believing um, in terms of where we're getting that information. So I think that um, just making sure that you are doing that analysis critically and... Um, making sure that you're getting that information from the right sources and not to say that there are that that the right sources are the ones that I say but the right sources for you and for what you believe in and for what your projects are 
um, I think it's important. I think the advice I would give someone starting out in the industry um, is it's it's hard sometimes. I think it's complicated sometimes, but it's very fun. And I think that um, making sure that you are taking care of people that are working in the industry and understanding that you're working with other human beings, no matter where they're from, if they're from government, from a private entity, from a university, or from a social group, or from a multi-sectorial organization, um, understanding that there is an, a person on the other side always helps um, to make sure that you can get your point across and just being very honest about it. Uh, I think that would be my biggest advice for anyone in the industry and in any industry, really. And um, yeah, I think that would be that would be the message that I would like to share. People comes first. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, two last questions. And uh, my last question is about your message. So you kind of uh, <laughs> give us a, a vision, but um For the people who are listening right now, if they want to know more about you, about what you've done, what you're working on, how can they reach out, connect, or see your work? Yeah, thank you so much. So if anybody wants to see more of the work that we're doing at Pete Policy Lab to learn more about the projects that I've been a part of in my career, they can go to my website, which is luciatroches.com. Um, I'm sure uh, that... My last name is a little bit complicated, but... I'll put it in the description. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, the Pit Policy Lab's website is policylab.tech um, and the Seaminds website is seaminds.co. And I think that we have all of the information there, really. Um, there is a lot of um, insights, reports, uh, different landing pages with the different projects we're working on. So more than welcome to collaborate to anyone that is interested in it. Um, we also have a really great uh, network of consultants. So if you're interested, just send us an email. Uh, and yeah, we'll be in touch. That's awesome. And you kind of share your message, but do you have a final message for the list of KI community? A final message? It can be personal, it can be professional, it can be a mix, it can be... <laughs> Uh, a final message, I think it's uh, keep true to yourself and people are what matter. I think those are the two things that I live by. Uh, just stick to your values and make sure that you are doing important work in the world and that you're connecting with other people, with people that think different than you. I think that's one of the main things that I have tried to do in the past years as well. Um, to learn that everybody is diverse, they might have different opinions, but everyone's opinion could be valid if we look at it from their point of view. So I think that would be it. Well, thank you so much, Lucia, and I wish you a wonderful day and I look forward to learning more from you in the future. Thank you for the invitation. I really had fun answering your questions and hopefully this will be of service to someone. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.